0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is Andrei Kirkov, who is probably the best-known Ukrainian writer to English-speaking readers, whose books include Death and the Penguin, The Bickford Fuse and Grey Bees, but whose new work is not a novel, but a diary. Diary of an Invasion is out now. Andrei, welcome. In this book, as you kind of admit in the course of it... The war, the the new iteration of the ongoing war in Ukraine has changed your job, hasn't it?
1: Well, it's it's changed not only my job, but my life. And uh, in fact, actually, I became first time in my life officially a refugee. I was a displayed person for five months. Uh, I have lots of new experience together with my family. Actually, I was accompanied by my wife on many journeys and we were together in Užgorod on the border with Slovakia in western Ukraine in the flat that was offered to us by an old lady whom we never met. And my job is now, of course, yes, I write essays and articles and diaries about what is happening in Ukraine. I am daily in touch with my friends in different towns and cities of Ukraine, in my village near Kyiv also, and even with people who are under occupation but sometimes get access to internet.
0: And... I mean, how does it sit with you, this this transfer from becoming an imaginative writer in a sense to, to, you know, moving genre into what we might call kind of documentary realism and to to being a spokesman? Because some writers are comfortable with being a national spokesman or seek it. Is it something that that sits easily with you?
1: I mean, I, I, I felt it as my duty, actually, from the beginning of the war. After my first shock come down... And we reached in three days the uh, destination and managed to send our daughter who lived at that time in London back to London through Slovakia. I, I started actually writing non-stop for media, for newspapers and magazines and uh, giving interviews and etc. And I think I was like doing it without thinking about my attitude to, towards this for first five, six months. And now I, I feel some kind of pain that I don't write fiction. I tried to restart the novel that I was writing before the war and stopped, and I couldn't. So so I'm still writing diaries and articles, but I want to come back at the same time to, to fiction, to literature. And I can, I can see why it is so difficult, because uh, the reality is much stronger, much more dramatic, uh, and it's just... Not so easy to get distracted from this reality because, I mean, I check the news every hour. I'm trying to be in touch with my uh, children and my wife almost every two hours, yes. And and we have a problem like I'm trying to solve a problem in Kyiv now. I'm in London. We need a plumber in Kyiv. So good plumbers are away, either as refugees or on the front line. Then the remaining plumbers are very naughty and choosy. And three days, we we are flooding the neighbors downstairs, and I cannot organize a plama in Kiev, and my son, who is in Kiev, also is not yet capable.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's all, ordinary life continues in that respect, doesn't it? But you're, you're explaining constantly to the Western media, you know, what's going on, what, I mean, is there one thing that you feel at the moment you struggle to get through, that we miss it, you know, because we pay a lot of attention still, happily, to Ukraine and what's going on in Ukraine, but do you feel there's something that we've got wrong in the sense that you you would like to get across
1: well i think the whole world got many things wrong about ukraine but the main issue that uh, there is still an attempt uh, in everybody's head to put together and to keep together russians belorussians and ukrainians in one bunch and to treat this war as something temporary after which the old friendship which actually didn't exist, (laughs) will be reinstated. I mean, people don't understand that uh, Ukrainian history is different from Russian history. They don't know that Ukraine was independent until 1654 and in 1918, and that Ukrainians have completely different, opposite mentality to Russians, because Ukrainians are individualists. I mean, they never had royal family. They never had their own king. They were choosing their leaders from 16th century. And actually, once the leader was chosen, it would be already two days later an attempt to remove him and to choose somebody else. So, I mean, this kind of mix of democracy and organized anarchy remains in Ukrainian mentality. And uh, the best proof of it is the existence of more than 400 political parties in Ukraine registered in the Ministry of Justice. And Russians are collective. I mean, the mentality is collective. They prefer stability to freedom. They love their Tsar. When they are tied with the Tsar, they kill him and they love the next one. But everybody who is a leader in Russia I mean, is accepted as a Tsar. Even in the Soviet Union, actually, five out of six general secretaries were re-elected until they died. Only Ukrainian Nikita Khrushchev was thrown out from the office.
0: Because he was Ukrainian.
1: <laughs> because he was Ukrainian.
0: <laughs> now, the relationship, however, within Ukraine with a substantial Russian-speaking minority, you yourself are ethnically Russian and Russian as your first language. Yes. Can you give us a sense, because, you know, again, for a lot of Western listeners and readers, you know, our understanding of Ukraine sort of starts in, you know, February this year. <laughs> um, what was the relationship between the Russian speaking and the Ukrainian speaking, and for that matter, the Hungarian speaking minorities in Ukraine? And how has that changed? You talk of the difficulty and the shame sometimes of being a Russian
1: speaker? Well, I mean, uh, from 1991, from the independence, I mean, I had lots of discussions with nationalists and many of them are my good acquaintances and pals, or even friends, if I can say. I mean, I speak Ukrainian without accent and quite often better than the Ukrainian speakers. I was criticized for writing in Russian, but I was never attacked because of this. And actually people just uh, said, okay, and we have quite a large community of Russian language uh, writers and poets and intellectuals. But the relationship between them, I mean, in the intellectual sphere, and the Ukrainian-speaking intellectuals were were not easy, usually. I mean, I have many friends because uh, I'm, well, more than politically Ukrainian. I'm Ukrainian citizen. I say that I'm Ukrainian of Russian origin who writes in his mother tongue, etc. Lots of explanations. But, uh, but I was always uh, advocating for independence of Ukraine. And there are, of course, Russian speakers who don't want to learn Ukrainian who were probably as arrogant sometimes to Ukrainian language and Ukrainian language culture as uh, Putin and Russian intellectuals and liberals. So, of course, I mean, they, they didn't have any connection with the Ukrainians speaking intellectual life. On the grass level, on the road, in the shops, there, are no, and there were no problems. Uh, people speak, uh, were speaking Russian and Ukrainian even in one conversation, and it would uh, work very well. So there was no danger to be a Russian speaker in Ukraine. And actually, I think half of soldiers on the front are Russian speakers <laughs> and the first victims and maybe majority of victims of this war among civilians are Russian speakers of Mariupol, of Donbass region, of South Kherson region, etc., you mentioned Hungarian. With Hungarian, it's a much more complicated story, and I think here there is a guilt on the Ukrainian side because Ukraine, Hungarian language culture of Hungarian minority was ignored for 30 years. I cannot give you an example of one book translated from Hungarian into Ukrainian written by Ukrainian-Hungarian speakers, and there are dozens of writers and poets who live in Carpathian region who write in Hungarian, who are supported by Hungary because uh, Ukraine was not doing for them a lot. But, in fact, their books are not read also in Hungary because they write about Ukraine, because they write <laughs> about Ukraine. their own region. <laughs> yes.
0: And you actually said, which was fascinating to me, again, is sort of a background that most won't know, that you know, one of the reasons that the Hungarian-speaking Ukrainians were, were sort of voting for Zelensky in great numbers is because Poroshenko, Zelensky's predecessor, passed a law designed to attack Russia, you know, yes. minimizing translations. Can you explain that? This?
1: No, no, this, this was about education in the schools yeah. and in the universities, that the the only language of education in Ukraine is Ukrainian. And, of course, for foreign students, it's English. So this was actually designed to remove Russian language from education. But, of course, it influenced uh, the minority schools of Romanian minority I think the goes minority in Bessarabia, although I'm not sure they have schools there. But Hungarians obviously have not only schools, there is a Hungarian university, Hungarian colleges in in Ukraine. But I think the whole st- Hungarian story started with Yushchenko, who toured Ukraine before the elections, and uh, maybe after he was already made president, I don't remember exactly, but this was 2004 or 5, and he went to Carpathian region. Of course, I mean, the local authorities got together uh, an audience for him in one of the Hungarian towns or villages, yes, and he was speaking to them in Ukrainian for half an hour before he understood that they don't understand the Ukrainian. <laughs> so He got extremely angry, and uh, and then the, it was the first, actually, time the Hungarian minority was attacked uh, verbally by Ukrainian nationalists for not learning and not speaking Ukrainian.
0: And this, this the politics of language here, I mean, we read and I expect I'm sure the experience bears out that a lot of the even initially Russian sympathetic Russian speaking minorities in, in the regions that are currently on the front line, you know, the majority Russian yeah. populations, that being bombed to hell by Putin has turned them into Ukrainian nationalists. Are we going to find a sort of Ukrainian hostility to Russian among Ukrainian speakers is going to kind of be a fissure in the country? Do you see it?
1: Well, I mean, everything Russian is hated now yeah. in Ukraine. I mean, there is no doubt about it. People, uh, for example, who are today in Bakhmut, it's a town which used to have another name. It was Artyomovsk before in Donbass, who do not want to be evacuated. It's, I don't know, maybe 20% of population, maybe more. I mean, these people probably still wait to be occupied by Russia. I mean, I don't understand their psyche, frankly speaking, because, I mean, I traveled three times in the war zones after 2014, and most of locals I was talking to were normal. But apparently, I mean, there are people who, who just who think that they will survive, but then the Russians will come and they will rebuild everything, and they will re- not only rebuild everything, they will recreate Soviet Union, because, I mean, Donbass is not pro-Russian. Donbass was kept pro-Soviet, and it was kept... Thanks to Russian propaganda and uh, Russian-sponsored projects like TV channel Nostalgie, this was one of the most favorite channels there, where you could see only Soviet films with Soviet happy ends, with Soviet heroes. You could even see repeats of the black and white TV programs from the Soviet times. Yes, so you,
0: you mentioned one. There's, there's one very comical example of a kind of collaborator during the Russian invasion. He, he's got a statue of Lenin. He's trying to
1: put up. Yeah. Yeah. And Russians brought actually one monument, I don't know from where, to Novakovka when they occupied <laughs> the town. And now they took away three uh, monuments from Kherson to Russian historic figures. I hope they will take them to Russia. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Now, the war, as you, you know, in some ways it's a writer's war, it's a narrator's war. It's an, the information war is hugely important. And we have a sort of image. Ukraine seems to be winning the information war in the West. Do you say that's not true Worldwide, in South Latin America? In Latin sense. America,
1: in Africa, no. Ukraine is losing because, I mean, Russia is much more powerful there. And especially everywhere where there is some kind of anti-American sentiments, Russia is winning.
0: And part of the information war, well, one of the things that's been so powerful in creating a narrative has been this image of President Zelensky. You know, as you say, he said, maybe not in those words, but in that spirit, you know, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Can you talk a bit about how Zelensky was seen and understood before the war kind of canonized him? I mean, as you describe it, before, you know, February of this year, the big row that was going on was between Zelensky and Poroshenko rather than Mm -hmm. Zelensky and Putin. How was he understood and seen? What sort of a figure
1: was he? Well, I mean, first of all, we should understand that maybe 25% of those who voted for him in 2019 were pro-Russian Ukrainians or pro-Soviet Ukrainians. Because I mean he presented himself as somebody who will definitely finish the war, end the war, and he said that if I don't end the war within one year, I will resign. That was his promise, as many other promises. And then when actually his uh, romantic views and plans were destroyed by reality, he was becoming more and more anti-Russian, anti-Putin. Which means that uh, he was losing his pro-Russian voters, supporters, but acquiring more patriotic voters. And uh, still, he he has a lot of support now, but he came to power as a comedian. I mean, as a comedian with a very Benny Hill-style sense of humor, only making jokes, and sometimes very stupid and nasty jokes about politicians, etc., but not against, for example, some oligarchs who were financing uh, this comedy show. And uh, I mean, he yes, Poroshenko was his main enemy because he is the main enemy of Igor Kolomoisky, the owner of the TV channel which was producing The Servant of the People and other comedies financing this. And uh, he brought to power lots of, well, not comedians, but people from show business. So, I mean, we have now a very strange bunch of politicians in the parliament with the background of wedding photography, and DJs, uh, lots of TV production personnel, etc. And for intellectuals, it was actually unacceptable. And especially, I mean, his way of addressing people, which in a way was repeating, I mean, he was repeating his role in the film. He just left the film and entered the reality. But from the beginning of the war, actually, his behavior changed and probably he understood that it's... Better to play really good dramatic role. Mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, I wonder if he will ever be able to come back to comic roles. But I mean, what is he doing from the beginning? of He always great job. So he managed to persuade politicians around the world to help Ukraine. He he is working hard. He has brilliant speechwriters. Yes, you say
0: that they they are the unacknowledged. Yeah. You know, geniuses, behind yeah, scenes, yes,
1: so. and his speeches are uh, published now in books, <laughs> and the author of the book is Zelensky, <laughs> no mentioning of the real authors of the texts.
0: <laughs> yes, you, say, you also say that, that it's become this huge bestseller with only a couple of thousand copies printed. Yeah. Yes, because there's no there's no paper. In Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. What we'll talks a bit about the the kind of cultural sphere of Ukraine, and you know how Russian and Ukrainian writers i seen. I mean, you talk about, for instance, you know, Ugin and is, you know, it's, it's shifted from being a kind of standard work of Soviet literature to something on the sort of Russian history shelf. And has there been a reorientation? I mean, you talk of the good Russians.
1: Well, it's a, <coughs> it's a good topic, but I mean, Russian literature is now part of world literature in uh, Ukrainian schools and universities. But still, in some universities, of course, every university is independent and they can put uh, different titles in the program. And in some places, actually, the world literature is represented mostly by Russian literature. But uh, Evgeny Onyegin remains in the program. And actually, even my children had to learn extracts by heart. I mean, of course, Bulgakov remains because uh, he is from Kiev. He was born in Kiev and he's a Kievan writer although of course he was somebody who didn't take Ukrainian independence movement seriously in the civil war time 1918-1921 of which he is accused now <laughs> with a lot of noise but generally the young generation has no interest in russian literature and uh, my generation probably lost interest already some years ago from 2004 2005 actually putin killed the interest to Russian culture and to Russian literature. And actually now, what is interesting now, that now many connoisseurs of literature started uh, and critics analysing the influence of Russian classical literature on readers and on Ukrainians and on Russians. And they discovered lots of interesting things. Of course, I mean, the cult of X in Dostoevsky's books, but then it's actually the, the theory... Uh, comes from France, not from from Ukraine. Uh, Andrei Markevich, the best known translator from Russian, and the translator number one of Dostoevsky in French, he came up recently with these uh, several examples how in Russian culture the violence and the crime without punishment uh, was promoted, which is part of Russian fatalism. So I mean, like if I have to kill, I have to kill, and this is the choice of Russian mobilized soldiers now those who don't want... But it's interesting. I mean, I I was talking to one Russian young man who is hiding from mobilization in Austria. And he was telling me, I don't want to to kill anybody. I said, but I mean, why don't you say that I don't want to be killed? No, no, I don't want to kill anybody. So there is still this pride that actually if he is sent there, he will kill. He will not be killed. (laughs) And it is incredible.
0: And this is... Of distinctly Russian fatalism. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think it's nurtured by its literary historical tradition and its by its religious tradition, or do you think it's, it's mixture? It's
1: mixture of religious tradition and literary tradition. Because I mean, most of Russians don't read Dostoevsky, of course, and they don't know about Raskolnikov. <laughs> Even if they learn something in the school, I mean, they wouldn't really take the book and read it. <laughs> but I mean, the, the general atmosphere in Russia is just like in Dostoevsky's books. <laughs>
0: And I wanted to ask about one of your books, particularly The Bickford Fuse, which seems to... It's set in a sort of wartime environment in which, you know, you're blundering across a landscape where it's dark and dreamlike and time seems to be out of joint and surreal things are happening and you've got a sort of Nikita Khrushchev figure floating above it all. I mean, you found yourself imagining a version of the Second World War, the, the... Tail end of the Second World War. Has your kind of collision with the real thing made you feel like you know I got that sense of it right?
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's it's incredible because the book was uh, it took me four years to write, 1985 till 1989. It was published only some years, several years ago, in English, and it's about the cult of war in Russia. That Russia cannot live without war, without victory, without sort of being proud. And now, actually, this book explains even the mentality of Putin. Because, I mean, how can you be a loser in the war? It's it's not Russian at all. If, if you are Russian, you have to fight and you have to win, yes. even if the war doesn't make any sense.
0: And that historical parallel, I mean, something that I was intrigued by early in this book, you talk about how Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia in particular have you know, they've come to a kind of reckoning with historical memory of the forced deportations, and you say Ukraine hasn't quite, that the forced deportations and indeed the Holodomor are sort of only semi-remembered, and there hasn't been a proper historical memory that's allowed you to come well, to that. Can you explain yes. what you mean by that?
1: <laughs> I mean, one of the Ukrainian old traditions, uh, not to have respects neither for their own politicians or our own laws and our own politicians. And uh, in this sense, the Holodomor and deportations and other stories like this, I mean, they were promoted, first of all, by Yushchenko and by the nationalistically orientated politicians. So, I mean, they have more enemies inside Ukraine than supporters. So it was already taken with lots of not skepticism, but I mean, so like uh, people were saying that why why, why should we feel victims all the time? I mean, you are talking that we were, for centuries, we were victims. But then actually, if we are accepted uh, as victims by the world, I mean, nobody will expect anything from us except for being victim again. And in this sense, plus, of course, that uh, Eastern Ukraine was under influence of Kremlin. And the Kremlin's message was that actually everything was done correctly. There was no artificial famine. The deportations were in response of the anti-Soviet activities and because people didn't want to join collective farms, etc. So, I mean, for Eastern Ukraine, this uh, explanation was okay. And actually, when I went first time before 2013, maybe 2012, to Lugansk, I had a talk, a lecture in the university, and then two students took me to show the town. And first of all, they took me to a small monument to the teachers killed by Ukrainian nationalists in uh, Western Ukraine after the Second World War. Well, I mean, it didn't, of course, uh, say on the monument that these were the teachers of communist ideology, of Russian language, etc. Because, I mean, just like now, the history repeats itself. I mean, Russia was sending and is sending teachers to the occupied territories to re-educate Ukrainian children, to make them Russians. (laughs) And the same was happening after 1945. And it's true, it's about 2,000 civil servants who were sent from Russia and from Eastern Ukraine to Western Ukraine. They were killed by the partisan movement. But uh, now I think actually there is no question about it because I mean I'm talking about like before 2013. I mean now now it's just the, the reality for 90% of population that uh, the artificial famine Hello took place and uh, there are lots of books with uh, witness accounts and documents now uncovered and published and practical. I mean the the history is available, the true history which was banned in the Soviet time is available.
0: And do you see, I mean there are clearly parallels, but do you think it's more or less, Putin's project now is more or less identical to what the Soviet project was, and indeed I guess what's Nicholas's?
1: I I think what Putin has in mind is a mixture of Soviet Union and Russian Empire. Russian Empire was much bigger than Soviet Union, it included Poland and Finland for example. And the Soviet Union was uh, uh, much more ideological, but strangely enough, in some cases less authoritarian. Especially when I was growing up in nineteen eighties, I mean, you wouldn't be probably already arrested for having at home banned books. Of course, I mean, you could be you could get into troubles. I mean, my brother was arrested, and then, but he was accused of robbing uh, ice cream kiosk instead of political crime. This was also the way to fight anti-Soviet dissidents. But at the same time, in the Soviet time, there were more dissidents. I mean, it was dangerous to be a dissident, and there were more dissidents than now in Russia. And in Russia, yes, I mean, first of all, I mean, you, you put a like under uh, sort of dubious from the Russian point of view post in Facebook, and you can get a fine. Well, you can get a case against you for sharing somebody's post. But now Facebook is outlawed in Russia together with Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and everything else except TikTok. So, yeah. But the reason for this war is actually, I think, this is the pandemic during which Putin got so isolated that he started dreaming. And he started thinking about what legacy he will leave behind and, of course, he wants to be remembered in the school books as somebody who recreated, who made Russia great again, who recreated the <laughs> great Russian empire. He wants to have monuments uh, everywhere. And this was one of the main ambitions, because I mean, he wanted to take Ukraine back into the Russian empire before he dies. And this is a big problem now, because, of course, I think he will be losing his... Legacy, because actually, ten years ago he was mentioning Ivan the Terrible, probably thinking that he is like Ivan the Terrible, and then suddenly, before the war, he started talking more about Peter the Great, and i I was puzzled at some point because Peter the Great opened Russia to Europe, not closed it from Europe, but then I understood why Peter the Great became the main figure for Putin. Because Peter the Great, after the Battle of Poltava, where Peter the Great actually won in the war against Ukrainian army of Hetman Mazepa, who was supported by the Swedish army of Karl XII, and then Ukrainians had to, the leaders had to escape to Bessarabia. But uh, Peter the Great was the first Russian Tsar who signed the first decree against Ukrainian language as the result. He started considering Ukrainians traitors and unreliable.
0: Which is a bit of a flavor of genocide, isn't
1: it? Yeah yeah
0: and you talk towards the end of the book about where we are now i mean obviously it's you know we've moved on a little bit from there but there's a real sense of a sort of flare of anger that in particular i think germany has not stepped up i mean what's the what's the feeling now as you understand it among the many ukrainians still living in ukraine you speak to about the level of support they're getting and how optimistic they are that it will continue as well as it needs to
1: well, uh, the military help is coming, but it's difficult to to be satisfied when, actually, for example, the German president Steinmeier was two days ago in Ukraine, and he went to visit Chernigov on the border with Russia. Chernigov was partially destroyed and still under shelling, and he had to spend two hours in bomb shelter while Russians were shelling Chernigov again. But during the conversation with uh, Zelensky, he promised to deliver two more missile systems. So, I mean, whenever we are talking about help from coming from European Union countries, I mean, we are talking about six Cezars, three, not tanks, or Soviet tanks, which are still <laughs> somewhere stocked in, in, in Czech Republic, and uh, we have 2,000 kilometers front line. So, in fact, uh, what is happening that uh, Ukraine is getting more equipment and tanks and uh, cannons, etc., from Russia, just <laughs> in the battle than uh, from the West. But uh, the most important help is coming from America and Britain, and the most modern equipment to fight back. But of course, I mean, we—I we, think—we are grateful for any cannon, for any machine gun, for any helmet from German government. Why not? <laughs>
0: And you say early on in the book, you know, I don't know if I'll write, write a book, a fiction book that looks at this. I mean, you've got an interesting line about saying, you know, a war isn't over when it's immediately over. It's only sort of over when people start writing fiction about it. If yeah. I'm paraphrasing yes, that correctly. Yes. Can you say, has your view has your on that changed? Do you see yourself at some point writing about this in fiction?
1: No. I was thinking about this because I was asked several times. For example, I mean, from the beginning of the war until recently, I was asked to write only essays and articles, and now suddenly I got three requests to write short fiction about the war. And I, I, I cannot do this because, I mean, the, why should I fantasize when there are so many real things happening? I don't have a right, actually, to, to write fiction about the war during... Even if it is based on the real... Events which are happening now or were happening yesterday, I mean, it's some, somehow for me unacceptable to work on it as it is fiction. I mean, my fiction that I was writing, I want to restart writing, it, deals with 1919, with the civil war, which has many parallels with today's situation, but it is easier to talk about the past war than about the war which is still going on. Andrei Kirchhoff, thank you very much indeed.
0: Diary of Invasion is out now. Thank you.